This is the Podcast Inc. production. Booyah! This is the moment podcasting fans listening around the world have been waiting for. Coming to you not so live from a listening device of your choice. It's time! Podcasting out of this corner, a mixed martial talker, holding no professional record. He stands at six feet one and one half inches tall, weighing in at whatever he feels like, hailing out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, presenting the sometimes angry, always funny, Self-proclaimed podcasting champion of the world, Steve Fingerstyles! So, welcome to another rendition of the podcast. I am here once again, always again, and brought to you by First Row Collectibles. If you're into nerd culture, if you're into sports memorabilia, if you're into wrestling memorabilia, please visit firstrow.ca. Use promo code THEPODCAST20 to receive 20% off. They got everything from comic books to signed wrestling figures, signed sports memorabilia, anything you want, they got it. They ship worldwide, and best thing is, they update daily. So please visit them at firstrow.ca today. If you're into video games and books, please visit bossfightbooks.com for great books on classic video games. You'll find titles like Galaga, Metal Gear Solid, Mega Mega Man 3 and so many others. Everything you see on their website is available in paperback and ebook format, so please check them out at bossfightbooks.com. And if you're looking for the best supplements and CBD products, visit LegacySubs.com. Use promo code THEPODCAST to receive 10% off. They got everything from sleep aid to muscle building. Anything that makes you feel great, makes you look great, they got it. They are Legacy Sports Nutrition at LegacySubs.com. If you want to support me directly, you can visit my merchandise store at tpublic.com or scroll down on today's device. It's embedded right there in the description. Click on that link. Takes you right to the merchandise store. I got everything from hoodies to t-shirts, travel mugs, phone cases, anything you need or want. But the most important thing, the easiest thing, the best thing to do to support the show is rate, subscribe, review on all major platforms. Most specifically, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. So this week's guest was a video game programmer and designer for Atari and the author of the book, Once Upon Atari, How I Made History, Killing an Industry. He is the Silicon Valley therapist, Howard Scott Warshaw. Hello, Steve. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm doing fantastic today, my friend. Hope everything is well with you. Things are great. Things are just rolling. Rolling, as I say, rolling downhill or rolling uphill? <laughs> well, usually, hopefully I get enough downhill momentum to make it over the next crest. <laughs> there you go okay this is going to be a very interesting conversation because right off the bat i'm going to admit something i've never owned any atari system now 
I've obviously played Atari games because I've had friends who've owned Atari and over the years, even in the arcades and going back now with all these classic collections and stuff, of course I've played it. But I was a ColecoVision guy growing up. That was my first console. That was my introduction to video games. So before we get into anything, was there sort of a rivalry like how it is sort of today with Atari and Coleco back then? Or was it just we're doing our own thing and, and that's that? Uh, I wouldn't call it a rivalry because they were so different. But the thing is, That's at Atari, thing. we just believed we were the top of the hill. Mm. And, you know, there was Atari, there was Coleco, and Intellivision. And that was kind of the That's crew, it. right, at that point. But Atari had so much greater distribution than either of the other two. It was just, you know, absurd. Although the truth is, they had better graphics capability in a lot of ways. Sure. So there was advantages to using those systems, for sure. But Atari had stolen the market. And so we weren't really focused on Coleco or Intellivision, because that's not what we were doing. Well, okay, that's cool to hear. So so for people who don't know, you started back in Atari in 81. And now I'm intrigued with people like yourself who got into video games that early on. Like, what was your inspiration? What made you want to go into the video game? Because there was like nothing really out other than a few arcade games back then, right? Uh, it's true. Well, there were, you know, there was, arcades were pretty full and the, the, the battle for the home market, the idea that you could take your arcade game home and play it whenever you wanted, was it was a big thing. And that's what the VCS was all about. Mm. But uh, I'll tell you, the thing that got me into video games, uh, ironically, was not video games. Oh, okay. <laughs> I uh, the, Most of the people at Atari were there for the games. I mean, that's what it was about. You had people who had sophisticated uh, college backgrounds, and you had people who were just homebrews who had never been to school okay. and just learned everything on their own. You had the whole spectrum. But they were all there because they loved the idea of playing with microprocessors and making games. Mm. Uh, for me, it was a very different path because I avoided computers for a lot of my life. And then somewhere mid in my college career, uh, somebody told me, well, if you're going to go forward in economics, which is what I was studying, okay. uh, you probably need some computers. And once I tried computers, I thought, holy cow, this is perfect. This is <laughs> unbelievable. You don't have to write papers. You don't have to read these long, obscure books. Right. And you just solve puzzles all day. It's a great. So I loved computers. And then I started to get my hands on microprocessors in college and ended up getting a master's in computer engineering. So I was all set. And I came to Silicon Valley, started working at Hewlett Packard. Oh, I was wow. so excited. I, I found my passion right. in computing. I'd never had anything I really loved doing or really wanted to do other than playing games, ironically. Okay. I always loved to play games. Okay, cool. I also love irony, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but I really, I, I, I never occurred to me to try and make a living with my games. Mm. And so I went to Hewlett Packard, all excited to get on with my world in the com world of computers. And Hewlett Packard is like the software pasture. That's where programmers go to die, in my opinion. <laughs> okay. And it was just brutal. And all the passion I had found had, had gone. Also, because I was bored there, mm -hmm. I act out. I act out a lot. Ah. <laughs> so I was kind of a zookeeper there. And one day someone comes up to me, one of my coworkers, okay. and he says, you know the kind of crazy stuff you do around here? Well, where my wife works, they do that all the time. I said, oh, where's that? He's Atari. There you go. And I said, oh, okay. So I knew Atari. I knew they made games. It never right. occurred to me people work there. Right. It just never occurred to me. So I went there and I talked my way to some interviews and I found out they do exactly the kind of computing I really like to do. Oh. And it's a wild, wild environment. I mean, out of control environment, wow. which is cool. And I thought, this is a place I need to be. Oh, and they make games? Cool. So... <laughs> 
I went to Atari because the type of computing that they do, which I find exciting because I'm a nerd at heart also. Sure. And, uh, and it's a wild environment. So I won't be as, I won't be the nail that sticks up there. I'll just be another zoo case, right. which is what I, I like to do. And so after a series of interviews and all that, they rejected me. Oh, really? <laughs> Did not offer me a job. Yeah. Wow. And so, but, I just took that as a launching point for negotiations because okay. I was not going to take no for an answer. <laughs> and that's one of the classic things. I became one of the iconic figures at Atari. Right. And the idea that they didn't see that at first and rejected me is something I go deeply into in my book, Once Upon Atari, mm. about you know how wacky it is that someone who really was made for that environment, they couldn't see it at first. But there's lots of reasons for that too. But anyway, I did end up there, obviously, and it was it was brilliant. It was it was the place I needed to be, and I got there, and it was the one of the best moves I ever made in my life. Okay, now I'm I shouldn't say I'm computer illiterate because obviously I grew up during the the computer era and the boom, so I was learning as I was growing up with it. And DOS just threw me completely off as a child. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't read it. I couldn't code anything. Like you know what I mean. And so I know they made a whole movie about it. Did you ever see DOS Boot? I've heard of it, but I've never watched it. <laughs> oh, you should check it out. Yeah, you'll really get submarined on that one. Oh shit! Okay, I'll most definitely put it on my must-see watch list. <laughs> but yeah, like to me, it was just a foreign language. I could not get the grasp of it, even though I loved it, and I was like again a nerd at heart. I loved video games and all that. And I, at one point, I did want to take like computer science and get into that realm too. But back then, there wasn't really any. I guess to, to say schooling or any for video games, right? right? So I guess in Absolutely. your case, you learned on the job, I assume. Well, it, like you say, first of all, it's really interesting when you say that it's like a foreign language because the truth is, I mean, computers were a new thing when I was in school, right? And there were people who were there weren't computer science departments, but people were trying to create computer science departments. Ah, okay. In fact, one of the reasons I got a, a master's in it was because I was at a school that wanted to open a graduate school in computer science. And I was the first, I was one of the first graduates. Mm. I was the first graduating class wow. of that school. And uh, when you say it's a foreign language, it's so cool because <laughs> I actually, you know, there was a foreign language requirement in my school and I did not want to study a foreign language. Okay. So I was able to use computers, right. a computer course as a foreign language wow, because that's awesome. programming, they call them programming languages. Right. So back then you could actually double that. And so I got to use my computer stuff and, and satisfy other requirements. Right. So that was just beautiful. That was just a lovely thing. But there's a whole chapter in the book. There's several chapters actually called Nerd World Country. Okay. <laughs> What that's all about is explaining technology to non-technologists, people who don't understand it. Oh, that's going to be awesome, then. You know, you say you say you're computer illiterate, but you pronounce the word computer correctly, so you're not totally computer illiterate. <laughs> I guess I have to say, and uh, it's interesting because computers are one of those things that seem so complex. They have what we call the black box effect. Okay. Right. Which is something I don't know what the insides do. Mm -hmm. And it seems incredibly complex and I'm very intimidated by it. When you really pop the top off and really see what's going on inside, when you understand computing, it turns out it's very elemental and simple because mm -hmm. all computers do is deal with ones and zeros. The okay. only thing a computer can really do 
is tell the difference between a one and a zero. At the root of it, that's all a computer does. And then it takes bunches of ones and zeros and picks them up from over there and puts them over here. Oh, and everything else is just things that are adapted around that to make it convenient. And so at the root of it, computers are deceptively simple. But to most people who don't ever look that deeply into it, they're incredibly complicated. And thank God for that. Because that's what makes computer work pay so much, is that most people don't want to get near it because they're so sure. intimidated by it. So you got to find someone else to help you with it. And, you know, that's where engineers come in. <laughs> no, most definitely. And I wish I would have kept up with it too because I was one of those kids that loved to take apart like my SNES and then put it back together, like do every and literally take everything full apart and put it back and manage to make it work again without knowing anything about it. But then as I got older, I shied away from that a bit and what whatnot. And even though it's like everything seems a bit easier now, like for, for introductory level, but it's still more complex because there's so much other stuff around it, like if, if that makes sense. But when that makes a lot of sense. When you were back in Atari, what was your actual role when you got hired then? When I got hired, my role was to be a pioneer on a new medium. That's really what it was. Oh, okay. I mean, technically, I was a video game maker, right? right? A video game engineer, which means I had to design and program video games. But the truth is, what Atari did was Atari made the huge breakthrough in interactive entertainment. This was the dawning of interactive entertainment. Yep. We took television and made it an active medium instead of a passive medium, mm -hmm. which is a huge thing to do. You're changing the fundamental aspect of television yep. affects the whole world, right? So what we did was we took people who were essentially zombies sitting on their couch, <laughs> staring at a box, and we turned them into zombies jumping up and down on their couch, <laughs> screaming at a box. Right. And you know, that's the change that we implemented in the world. That's and, awesome. But it really was a breaking through in a whole new world of stuff. So what's your job as an Atari game developer? What your job, the best job description I could come up with is you have to come to work mm. whenever you want. Okay. You can't leave until you feel like it. But... You have to, the, the goal is that when you leave at the end of a day, you have created something really cool that did not exist when you came in this morning. Mm. That's your job at Atari, to keep making something I like cool. That. No, that, that, is so, that is so cool and, and well put, my friend. And now your first project was Yard's Revenge, if I'm not mistaken? Well, my first project's an interesting thing because okay. as I said, I begged, borrowed, and stole my way into Atari. <laughs> right. And so I did that for a, a, a huge cut in pay. Okay. And I was on probation. Right off oh, I'll do wow. anything, anything you want. Just please give me a chance. Okay. Right, right. So they paid me a pittance and they said, okay, uh, you're on probation so we can get rid of you anytime we want. And I'm like, yes, please. I'll take it. Okay. And so the first thing to do is assign me a coin-op conversion. A very typical thing to do then was to take a coin-op game and try and adapt it to the 2600. Sure. But as coin-ops keep getting better and better and better every game, <laughs> and the 2600 just stays where it is, it becomes increasingly impossible to do that. Right. They don't care. They just still want a version of the game. Of so I took a look at the game. I read the manual. I understood the 2600 to some degree. And after a few days... I go back to my boss, the guy who put me on probation, who said, okay, we'll give you a chance. I said, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to do this game. <laughs> I don't want to oh, wow. do this game. Okay. This game is going <laughs> to suck on the 2600. And I can't afford to have my first game suck. I just of won't course. do that. 
But I didn't just say, no, I'm not going to do it. So what okay. I did was I made a little presentation. I said, look, I could do a different version and I could adapt some of the pieces of this. And ah. here's some things that I think are better attuned to this particular hardware. Right. And how about if we go with this? And he said, OK, instead of saying you're fired, which was nice. <laughs> and right. He let me go on with it. And that game went on to become Yar's Revenge. It wasn't ah, Yar's Revenge yet, okay. but that was the game that was going to be Yar's Revenge because that game didn't have a name. But how gotcha. Yar's Revenge got its name is a very interesting story. So well, I'm assuming that story's in the book, so if, if, if you don't want to say it, that's that fine. That story is totally in the book. Okay, it's all so about how I out-marketed marketing. Oh, okay. I, I, <laughs> I pulled what we call... I'll, I'll tell you. You want to hear the story? I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you the basics of it. Sure. It's the game, I, I worked on the game, and the game went through a variety of phases, but ultimately the game got to a place where it was really hot. Okay. People loved it. Because I, I didn't make games as an engineer. I was qualified as an engineer mm -hmm. uh, and, and mathematician and all that stuff, certainly. But I also was an economist and a theater mm. buff, right? I love theater, I love movies, I'm a film buff, right? Like, ever, okay? And so I approached video games, making video games, not like a programming task. I okay. approached it like a movie. Right. And so like a lot of engineers, when they go to make a game, they think of what they're going to put on the screen. That's what their focus is. What am I going to put on the screen? Gotcha. That's not how I think. When I make a video game, I'm thinking about what's going on in the head of the player. What's mm. going on in the player's mind. Uh, what's on the screen is only there to do something to the player's mind. And that's my, when I make a video game, I'm trying to warp someone's mind in a good way. Awesome. And so that's it. That's my approach. And so I did that by using sound stimulus and visual, just visual stimulation. That's the way I look okay. at it. Is we're putting stimulus on the screen in your eyes and ears, and it's going to make you react in some way that's going to cause you to manipulate the controller, and that impacts the game, and there's the loop. So anyway... So a game, because a video game really at its root is a biofeedback loop, right? We do stuff, it changes what we see on the screen and hear in our ears, right. and that makes us change what we do with the controller. It's a feedback loop. Right. So the game got hot. It got to a place where people just really dug it. It was visually really kind of intense, yep. much more so than the average game at that time. Mm -hmm. And I was really happy. I was really happy that my first game was not going to suck. Right. <laughs> but now it came time to name the game, and what are we going to do? And so the marketing team told me, okay, we're getting ready to name the game. Right. And they have a history of coming up with incredibly lame names. They just, you sure. know, it's just... They're good marketers, not necessarily super creative people sometimes. <laughs> gotcha. And so, and I was such a control freak, I, I couldn't let go of this. I had to be involved in every single aspect of the game. So I said to this product manager, look, uh, can I submit a name, a package? And he goes, yeah, sure. I said, okay, come here tomorrow morning. This was like one afternoon. I said, come here tomorrow morning. I'll have something for you. Right. And I stayed in my office all night. And I sat down, I tried to think up, but I had to make up a name. This is my chance to contribute a word to the English language. Right, the way of I course. At, right? I mean, if you make up a name and it's it really cool, and the game gets big, then like Pac-Man, you know, everybody knows Pac-Man. Exactly. This is a chance to contribute something, you know, globally. I, I always thought that would be fun. So I start to make up names and they all suck because they sound stupid. Have you ever tried to just make up a new word? It's true. And, Right? I agree. <laughs> it sounds stupid. Yeah. So I thought instead of just making something up out of the blue, okay. 
Okay. I'll use an algorithm, just like I do with programming. Okay. I thought I'll use, I'll do a coding trick or something. Sure. And maybe that'll have a hook later. And then I thought about it. So what am I going to encode? And I thought, well, I got an idea. How about the head of the company? The guy's name is Ray Kazar. What if I spell his name backwards? So Ray spelled backwards is Yar. Yeah. That sounds kind of cool because it's got a Y in it. Yeah. And Kazar, you spell that Kazar, you spell that backwards. That's Rayzak. And I thought that's good because it's got a Z in it. Because anything with Ys and Zs yes. is really good sci-fi stuff. Right? Especially back then, so, of course. All I'm missing is an X. But, I was just you know, going to say xenophobe or something. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> exactly, right? You want to be at the end of the alphabet because it's far out, right? <laughs> so true. And so uh, so I, I figured out, and, and I thought, what's better than just a name? I thought, yeah. oh, I got it, a name and a story. Oh. So I sat down and overnight I wrote like a 12-page story. Wow. Uh, the sci-fi story about that created this whole backstory for the game and, and illuminated this whole scenario okay, okay. that the game is played within. Yeah. About flies who get irradiated and wipe out the humans on this interstellar ship and then take over the solar system. But mm. there's this monster that comes and blows away one of their planets. <laughs> and so, because one of the first words I did come up with for the title was revenge. Ah. I thought revenge revenge is a great title word right yep. because everybody wants revenge of course right? so, so you're gonna get that and then it was just a question of whose revenge it is yeah. so it became yar's revenge and so i gave them that pass so the guy comes in the next morning i give yep. him the package i give him the name and the story and i go hey i got a whole story he goes oh that's cool that's interesting mm-hmm. so he takes it away and then the next day he comes back and he said i said hey is the is it in i said is my submission in? he goes yeah he goes, yeah, we've got it. And uh, I said, look, I'll tell you what, I'm going to I'm going to want to tell you a secret, but I don't want it to influence uh, anything about the game. Right. right. And he goes, yeah. And I said, but really, you know, I need you to swear you're not going to share this with anybody. And I, I swore him to secrecy multiple times. Okay. I said, look, Yar, you know, Yar, the name of the character. I said, what's that spelled backwards? And he goes, uh, Ray. I go, right. Ray and I said Ray Zach, you know where the thing is. Spell that backwards. And he goes uh, Kazar, Kazar Ray Ray Kazar, uh, Ray Kazar, <laughs> <laughs> and he gets it. He goes, does Ray know about this? Yeah. I said, well, of course Ray knows about this. I, said, I wouldn't do something like this without Ray's knowledge. I said, but also I don't want you to tell anybody because I don't want this to unduly influence the name of the game, uh, right? Gotcha. And so he goes, okay, I promise I won't tell him. And I swear him to secrecy two more times. <laughs> and he goes, okay, and then he takes off. Now, at this point, yes. I know three things, okay. right? I know one, first, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to run right back there and tell everyone about this. <laughs> I know that's going to happen. And uh, two, oh, no. I know that nobody at that level in marketing has the balls to go talk to Ray Kazar about this. Okay. And that's a good thing because three, Ray knows nothing about this. Oh, no. <laughs> I pulled this out of my ass. Right. So, oh, my God. And so, and then the following day, the guy comes back and goes, guess what? We're going with yours. We're going with yours. Look at that. And I just figured I planted the seed so yeah, no yeah. one in marketing would dare go against something that Ray was in on. Right. And uh, it became, oh, that's, and that's awesome. how it became Yar's Revenge. And that was, and that was also the first backstory in the history of video games. So wow. what I had done there, I didn't realize that's it was true. I had invented the backstory for a video game. And it became the first product with an ancillary product because then they went on to make a comic book about that. the story that was released with the game. And Yar's Revenge set a lot of firsts. It set a lot of standards in the industry. 
I was I was always very proud of Yar's Revenge. No, it's so true, because even looking back now that I'm thinking about it, so many games that I first started playing when I was younger had no story. You just go get the high score, you die, you save, you save the, the damsel in distress, and that's pretty much it, like, you know what I mean? But it's so exactly. true. I never thought when the first actual game that introduced the story, and it was Yar's Revenge. Again, kudos to you. And obviously, Yar's went on to be one of the top five in most people's lists of uh, best Atari games of all time, right? And, and you said it, you're a movie buff, and you love movies your filmmaker yourself how was it getting to work on obviously the indiana jones ip most specifically raiders of the last ark uh that was amazing it was amazing <laughs> right because steven spielberg you know as a film buff steven spielberg was one of my idols of course and i had seen some of his early tv stuff and loved it jaws was amazing close encounters of the third kind yep. like totally changed my worldview of course and so i find out Oh my God, Raiders of the Lost Ark is coming up. I just finished Yar's Revenge. And now they say, okay, well, we need someone to do Raiders. And you're one of the people who could do it. But Spielberg has to approve whoever's oh, going to do it. Okay. So I have That's to fair. go interview with Steven Spielberg oh, wow. to, to see if I can do Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. So I thought, okay. <laughs> so uh, we set this up. I had a 9.30 meeting in LA. Okay, this is in Los Angeles. Now I'm in San Jose or Sunnyvale, California, around okay. in the North Bay. Uh, I've got to go. I get up at like 5 in the morning, which I hate doing. <laughs> I grab a copy of Yars Revenge. I took a Yars Revenge cartridge with me. Oh, there you go. Catch a commercial flight, get down to L.A., take a taxi through all the morning L.A. traffic, oh, which is like, holy crap. Of course. <laughs> But I make it, and I make it to Warner Studios, and okay. I show up at 9.25. I just made it for the meeting. <laughs> I walk in. Here's the receptionist, and she looks at me, and I go, hello. And she goes, hello, Mr. Warshaw. Your meeting has been rescheduled to 3.30 this afternoon. Oh. And I'm like, what? What? I flew here. I had to take an airplane to get here. You moved me six hours? Jeez. And it's like I was really kind of miffed at first. Right, but of then course. I thought, well, I said, can you fix my ticket for me? Can you? I was like, oh, absolutely. I'll get that I'll get that set for you. I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. Okay. And then I realized, you know, once I got over myself a little bit, <laughs> I said, you know, I'm here at Warner Studios. Yeah. I got six hours to kill. So I said, look, is it okay if I just sort of wander around the studio lot oh. till, uh, till then? Right. And they said, absolutely, go right ahead. And oh, it was sorry. like, yeah, lemonade, bitches. <laughs> it, was like, it was like I got to cruise around unescorted Whoa. all over the Warner Brothers lot. Awesome. I visited the sets of, right. of TV shows I enjoyed watching. I stole stuff. <laughs> <on the sets. laughs> I think the statute is run on that. It's, Love it. Uh, I admit it. I actually stole stuff <laughs> off the sets, and oh. it was just an amazing. I got to go to the commissary and eat with people who were like the aliens and the ancient knights, sure, you know, and the the eighteen hundreds, you know, romance novel people. It's uh, it was just an amazing. It was a dream day for That's like so a cool. movie freak nerd like myself. Right? And then at the end of it. Uh-huh. Here we go. It's Steven Spielberg. I get to hang with Steven Spielberg, except I don't just hang with him. Right. Now I've got to interview with him. That's that's kind of a weird way to meet your hero. Exactly. And so, but I show up. Here we go. Here's Steven Spielberg. We're shaking hands. Very cool. Mm-hmm. We chatted enjoyably for a while, and it was going pretty well. And then at one point, 
I told him, this is all in the book, in Once Upon Atari. Okay. I told him, look, Stephen, I have this theory that we're about to meet the aliens. Okay. And I think you're actually one of the aliens. I said, would you like, would you like to hear it? Okay. And he goes, yeah. And I laid out my whole theory about, and E.T. wasn't even a thing yet, right? Oh, I didn't even know there was right. an E.T. But I just thought of Close Encounters, and I said, look, I said, yeah. you know, the aliens are, you know, if they can get here, you know, they're not idiots, you know, and they've seen our <laughs> movies and stuff probably, and they know what we're like when we meet aliens. <laughs> I said, look at you. I said, you're making a movie that's about friendly aliens that are helpful, and we can talk yeah. with them and deal with them, and that's cool. I said, that's that's a whole different thing. And I, and so I figure what it is, is you're culturalizing the planet, right? These aliens, they're going to, we're not going to, they're not going to show up in the spaceship. We're going to find out they're already here and they've been working with us already. Right. So I figure you're part of this team. You're part of this alien advanced team okay. that's helping us get ready to meet the aliens. I said, and you're the production guy, <laughs> you know, and, and I said, and you've got this marketing team who has made sure this movie is seen in every language all over the world to make sure everybody's ready to meet the aliens. Uh -huh. So I just want to say, Nice job. <laughs> great job. Very impressed. Right. So, so I told him that whole story. Okay. It was like, and then, and so we chatted a little more and then I took off and I went back up to uh, Atari. Mm -hmm. And the next day when I got into work, I found out that he had just called and he said, yes, Howard's the dude. I want him to do the game. Look and I'm that. pretty sure calling him an alien was the thing that clinched it for me. That's what got me the deal. Oh my God. That's so awesome. And again, I, that man, so brilliant, ahead of his time. One of the pioneers working with the video game industry to adapt movies and bring them over, right? Like, what was what was the actual first movie adaptation into video game? Do you know? Yes, I do. Oh, it happened perfect. to be Raiders of the Lost Ark. Look at that. <laughs> that was a, another first. I was the first one to start a movie adaptation uh, to a video game. So who, who started first? Was it Spielberg who wanted to do it, or was it Atari that connected with him first? Uh, I think it was Atari that went to connect with him because once, when, once you know, Raiders was out for a while, right. people all over the place were pursuing him for the rights to do, you know, how that's how it is with licensing. If you do a major creative property like a movie, everybody comes to you, they want to license your property to make their property sell. And so I think it was Atari that pursued him originally. And how much influence did Spielberg and, I guess, Lucasfilm have involved in, in the game? Was there a lot, or was it all just oh, the interesting Virtually you none. Oh, wow, virtually really? None. I mean, I got to meet Spielberg, and then I saw him a few months later when he came up to Atari to visit, and we had lunch, and I showed him some of the stuff on the game. Right. And every once in a while, he would come to Atari, and we would have lunch. It was very cool to chat with him, but we didn't really discuss the game very much at all. And then at the end of the game, I put together a video oh. of a playthrough of the game. And he watched Smart. that, and mm -hmm. he loved it. The thing was, he said, this is just like a movie. Like, I showed him the playthrough. He said, just like a movie. And to me, my heart soared. Oh, that's awesome. It's absolutely soared. It's like, my idol, Steven Spielberg, <laughs> thinks the game that I made of his movie feels just like a movie. Because, I mean, I was one of the premier video game makers of my time. Mm -hmm. But what I really wanted to be was a film director. Ah, <laughs> so, all right. You know, it's like you scratch a game maker, you will find a film director. And uh, that's cool. And so that meant so much to me to have that. Now, what's easier, working on already an established IP or creating something from scratch? Uh, I think it's always easier 
it's easier to work off an existing property, but it is also more constricting in some ways. That's that makes sense. Yeah, of course it does. Right. So, because there's like this inverse relationship, right? The more freedom you have, the less structure you have. Right. And structure helps you. Structure can help you hit a target. There's no question. Mm -hmm. But sometimes if it's not a very interesting target, you can do a brilliant (laughs) recreation that turns out to be boring. Mm -hmm. And that's not really the goal. That's the funny thing about technology. Here's the beauty of video games. For people out there who love video games or interested Mm -hmm. in video games, and you probably think about making video games, which is another interesting thing is that there are people everywhere now who grew up and video games are a normal part of their life. Right. Right. And, and with everybody, like I grew up thinking, I wish I could make movies because I saw movies. I thought this would be cool. I'd want to do it. Mm-hmm. Naturally, the people who grew up with video games, they thought about making movies, but they also thought about making video games. Everybody has an idea for a video game. Of that's going to be a fabulous game. So, of course. <laughs> What's interesting is that the people, if you think about us, the people who were literally pioneering video games, we didn't grow up with video games. There were no video games. We mm-hmm. were the last generation to grow up without video games. Yep. So I don't know what it's like to grow up with with video games. Mm-hmm. But I know what it's like to grow up and dream and want to do uh... something. So video games, but video games occurred in, in the world of technology, right? Mm-hmm. Now technology, computer programming, the thing about programming is, again, it's just like that, it's got that black box effect. Programming isn't that hard, right? It's a, just creating a set of specific instructions. It's monotonous. It's pedantic at times. It's kind of elemental. It's kind of silly because some of the instructions are so basic and so simple. Mm-hmm. But you have to put them together in big blocks to create bigger meaning, right? right? Like words. One word by itself doesn't mean that much. But you put them into sentences. You put them into paragraphs. And now suddenly you have a story. Exactly. And it's the same thing with <laughs> programming, right? You take these little pieces. You put enough of them together. And now you have a program that does something. Right, right. But the thing is, usually technology has a spec. Right. Mm-hmm. So the spec is when 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 the when the person hits button A, light B goes on. Light B turns on. Right. So you do that. It's not hard to do. And then you hit the button. The light goes on. Okay, it works. There we go. You've hit the spec. Right. Hitting a spec, if it's just a technical spec, mm-hmm. is not that hard to do. There are trickier ones and less tricky ones, but it's basically not that hard to do. But. When you make video games, you have to have all the technical skill it takes to do and execute a spec. Mm -hmm. But there's one extra thing that's added to the spec in video games that all other programming does not have. Okay. And that is when when it's all said and done and all the technology has to work exactly as it's supposed to, it has to be fun. Okay, and when you add that to a spec, you change the whole task Mm -hmm. because now... A pure nerd who may not be that engaging an individual or who might not be a very stimulating person to interact with, but may be an excellent technical production person, they may have no clue. You know, what the average technologist, we say, okay, it has to be fun. Okay, well, can you define fun for me? What does fun mean? Yeah. How do I measure fun? Do I, do I have fun units? Right. Can you give me a fun meter so I can tell <laughs> how fun it is? You know, and how do I, how do I know it's so how true. fun it is? so true, yeah. Right? So what it is is a video game maker has to be a full-on nerd, but they also have to have that sense of interactivity and fun and mm-hmm. wonder and, uh, and you want to be an entertainer, right? right? So basically you take a nerd and infuse them with ham, and that's how you get a video game designer. 
you know, and yeah. I was raised to be an entertainer. Right. You know, I mean, my parents weren't really showbiz parents at all. That's mm. not the case. What I mean is they raised me to have lots of insecurities, a need for <laughs> approval and have absolutely no respect for boundaries whatsoever. There and, you go. know, that's an entertainer, right? <laughs> so true, my friend. That is so true. And before we get into E.T. and all that fun stuff, I was wanting to know, too, how big were the developing teams back then and how long did it take to, to put out a, a game? Okay, so let's take Yars Revenge, for instance. Mm -hmm. So including me, you know, all the people that worked on the development team for for Yars Revenge Mm -hmm. was one person. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. It was one person, one game. When it came to Raiders of the Lost Ark, I had a person to help me with graphics, but they only did one or two animations. I still did most of the graphics myself. On E.T., I had a graphics person who did uh, a lot of the graphics, the vast majority of the graphics, and I had a sound person who made the theme, the opening theme, ah, okay, uh, for me, and that's it. But it was mostly all the design, all the programming, a lot of the, some graphics are made by just painting pictures and putting the picture on the screen. Sure. Some graphics are generated what I call algorithmically, which means you do programming tricks to make the graphic appear as opposed to just putting a picture on the screen. Mm. And so I was responsible. I like doing those kind of graphics because they're cheaper. They save you space and time. Oh, okay. And, uh, so, but yeah, that was the beauty of it. See, I, Nowadays, a console is a huge. A console game is a huge operation. Hundreds right? and hundreds of people. Exactly. And it's basically it's like a luxury liner, right? <laughs> okay. And a luxury liner is like a really big thing. Carries a lot of supplies. You can have a great time on a luxury liner. One thing you cannot do easily on a luxury liner is change direction. Mm. Right? It has too much inertia, too much momentum. Working on the 2600 at Atari was like a speedboat, right? You can't carry that much stuff. You can't do (laughs) that much stuff with it. But you can have a very cool time, and you can go anywhere you want. And if you're going one way and you suddenly see something on the shore over there, you think, you know, I want to check that out. Mm. There you go. (laughs) Exactly, right? You can do that so easily. And so it was basically there's a collaborative effort. But working on the 2600 was, was a work of authorship. It was mm. it was not collaborative. It, you're an auteur, and you have all the responsibility, which means when it works, you get all the credit, and it's yeah. great, and it's of exciting. Course. And when it doesn't work, when it's a big failure, you're the one who did it too. And you have to be able to ride both sides of that street, right? And so it's... Of course, uh, of course. And I wonder if that sets up your next question. Well, of course, because obviously we got to touch on ET, but quickly too. So, how how long was the turnaround, and did you actually have deadlines t- to meet back then, or was it free reign? Um, doing games under twenty six hundred was largely free reign because mm. what you did was you started working on a game and you worked on it until it was good. Ah, and okay. Didn't release until it was good. Now it. But I was. This was also a transition. One of the things I really talk about a lot in Once Upon Atari, particularly mm-hmm. the how I made history by killing an industry, <laughs> was about the shift in in the attitudes and what went on internally in the company that made the difference. Uh, and okay. this was a period when I got there. It was just at the beginning of this transition that went from free reign creative stuff to a much more uh, schedule oriented and deadline oriented thing. And Raiders of the Lost Ark was a great transition. Right. I had a good deal of time, but they needed it to make sure we hit the Christmas market 
for 82. And uh, so schedules and deadlines were becoming bigger. But to give you an idea, uh, so Yars Revenge took seven months oh, to make. Oh, okay. That's not bad. That took seven months. Raiders of the Lost Ark was a huge game, and that took ten months oh, for really? me to do. Okay, okay. So then it came time to do E.T., and E.T. Okay, was yes. an emergency thing because here we go, and I'll tell you more about that, but basically the schedule that was allotted for E.T., mm-hmm. the most expensive license ever in video game history, yep. was five weeks. Not months, weeks. Are you kidding so me? I am not kidding you. The mo- At a time where no one had ever done a game in less than six months, I was okay. given five weeks that's to do E.T. And that's one of the key pieces of the story of E.T. Was wow. that there was no time. That's crazy. And that explains pretty much everything. So that would lead up to pretty much all the other questions as if looking back, what would you have done different? I would assume is actually have time to make a decent game. <laughs> I, well, you know, I would do that, except for one thing. Okay. It's like, there's a lot of things I could change. In fact, I do have some sections in the book that are all about what I would do differently with ah, E.T. okay. And I, not just differently, but I also, here's the, you know, what if I had one extra day, what would I do differently? Oh, if I had, sure. If I had one extra week, which would have been another 20% of the schedule, what would I have done differently? I know, right? Or if I had an extra couple of months, mm-hmm. what would I do differently? I cover all of those. Because they are different things, right? If, you know, the time changes how you change things. But I'll tell you, would I do it differently? I don't know. Because the thing is, E.T. went on to become this phenomenon we're still talking about, right? I did a media product (laughs) over like 40 years ago that we are still talking about. So would I change the? I don't know that I would change very much because if I went back and changed much then... We wouldn't be able to talk now, and I would have missed this incredibly fun conversation, which I would have hated to do, Steve. I just wouldn't want to miss this. Yeah, we, we didn't want to butterfly affect the timeline, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, my goodness. So, obviously, you knew that the game wasn't up to par and wasn't going to be well-received, I assume, then, right? Oh, no, I didn't know that. I, I mean, oh. I did a completed game. I did a complete finished game. Okay. I did what people considered impossible, and that's what I set out to do. Oh. When they... Cause, Here's what happened. I'm sitting in my office, and I am a little, already a little crispy. Right? <laughs> of course. I've just been on a 10-month, like, kind of death march on working on once on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. And I'm looking forward to a vacation. I'm looking forward to a break. Because you get a break after you finish a game. Of course. As deserved. And then Ray Kazar, the CEO of the company, this yeah. is my boss's 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 <laughs> boss, yeah. calls me up. That never happens in a corporation. Oh, that's <laughs> true. Know, that is true. You don't generally get a call from more than two boss yep. levels up. Oh, yeah. And and he goes, hey, Howard, we need E.T. for September 1st, and this is July 27th. Mm-hmm. He goes, can you do it? And I had just finished Raiders. I had Yars Revenge was the most popular original game Atari ever put out. Mm-hmm. Raiders was a success. Yep. I'm feeling my oats. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like I said, absolutely, I could do this. I wanted a mountain to climb, Jeez. and uh, and I had promised them that I would do the game for them. I knew it was like a ridiculous challenge, mm-hmm. but uh, I took it on. And uh, a couple of days later, when they announced the, uh, it's funny, I just finished Raider of the Lost Ark, 
Then they announce in a company in a in a department meeting Howard's going to be doing the ET game, mm. and people are like, oh God, Howard gets to do all the titles. <laughs> <Which isn't true. laughs> right. I, I had done one big title. Yeah. You know, it's not like I got all the titles. But yeah, people yeah. are grousing and complaining. Yeah, and so I stood up in the meeting because this is what I do. Mm. Okay. I stood up in the meeting and okay. I said, now this is July 30th. Mm. Okay. So I said, uh, look, this ET game is due for September 1st. It's less than five, less than five weeks from right Nuts. now. I said, this game is due for September 1st. I said, anybody who wants it, you can have it. Oh, Just raise, okay. Raise your hand. You can yeah. have it. I'll be happy to give it to you. Yeah, yeah. Crickets. Look at that, <laughs> you see? Crickets. No, and from from that day forward, nobody said a word to me about, oh, Howard gets all, all the titles. Good for you. What they did start talking about was, oh, my God, Howard is out of his mind. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't realize it, but... The CEO had already called my boss's boss before he called me. Oh. I didn't know this. He called my boss's boss. Yeah. He says, we need ET for September 1st. Same thing he told me. And my boss's boss said, you can't have it. You can't do a video game that fast. It just can't happen. Mm-hmm. And he just said no. But after that, <laughs> he still decided to call me because I had had some... I had some very interesting interactions with Ray Kazar before that, not just from the Yars Revenge thing, okay. but from a variety of other things. And Ray knew enough about me to think it might be worth calling me, and I gave him what he wanted. It wasn't necessarily fully what he was asking for. Right, but... <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I was willing to do it, and I did it. I did produce a fully done debug game. And even after all the returns... Mm-hmm. E.T. still sold over a million and a half units. It did. And there are fan clubs for it. It's I admit there are problems, and I go well <laughs> into the problems in the in the video in the E.T. video game. Okay, yeah. But and, and it's certainly most people will tell you it's not the worst game of all time. Mm-hmm. But I do prefer when people call it the worst game of all time. You know why? Mm. Because Yars Revenge, like you noted earlier, is frequently noted as one of the best games of all time. Yes. So as long as E.T. is the worst game of all time, I have the greatest range of any (laughs) game designer in history. And that's where it's at, man. Oh, that's so cool to hear. Oh, my goodness. So after E.T., was that it with Atari? You guys went your separate ways? Oh, no. Oh. After ET, I was pretty burnt out, but it okay. took me a while to recover. And I started working on another game, and then I did a game that actually has been reviewed as one of the best video games on the VCS called Saboteur. Oh, okay. but it took a while to do that game. It took a while to make a really good game, mm. and then they started renaming it. They wanted it to be the AT. Oh, so we recast the game and reworked the graphics and did all that. Yeah, yeah. And then they said, nah, we're not going to do the AT Oh, license. my God. So then we switched it back to Saboteur. <laughs> yeah. And then they said, no, nah, maybe we will do the AT license. And then Atari folded. And then it basically ah, fell apart. Okay. So that game didn't get released, but it did get released ultimately. Atari Age ended up releasing the game ah. like 20 years later. So I have the fastest video game development in E.T., which was done in five weeks, to release. And I have the slowest video game development because I did Saboteur, which was essentially 20 years from start to release. So I have both ends of that spectrum also. So you might say I am a full-spectrum game designer. 
And that's awesome. And you mentioned it, like, you're still talking about ET. We're still talking about Atari. Just recently, Mike Micah and his team at over at Digital Eclipse put out the Atari 50th Anniversary Collection, which is getting amazing reviews from top to bottom. Have you had a chance to check that out, actually? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm in it. Oh, so I was very, there you I go. Was very honored to be a part of that because the Atari 50 thing not only has a lot of the games, okay. and Yars Revenge is definitely featured in that. Of course. But it also has interviews with a lot of the people who made the games ah, and, and that's explain right. the background. So Atari 50 isn't just, uh, it's not just a collection of games. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a library of game history, gaming history, and what went on and what's there and, and the people behind the games, the stories behind the games. And that's what you find in my book, Once Upon Atari. Mm. In my book, you'll find an incredible collection of stories and shenanigans. There's the sprinkler <laughs> lobotomy. Oh, wow. Right there's the time that Todd jumped off the balcony. There's there's some amazing stories mm, that went on in the awesome. pursuit of creative innovation, and uh, and what it means to be in a creative environment, and what nerd culture is all about, mm-hmm. and also my journey of what it's like to be lambasted as the person who destroyed a four billion dollar industry <laughs> all by themselves, and what it's like to be resurrected. It's a, it's a pretty amazing journey. The reviews are very good on it. And yes, they are. I'm really honored to have done it, and I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you about it. No, and thank you, and people should go check it out, and I'll give you a platform to, to promote it towards the end of the show and all that, but what... Okay, because you said you're a filmmaker, you made video games. Did you ever think you were actually going to be an author? Uh, yeah. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> well, the problem is, if you ask me did I ever think I would be blah, 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 I pretty much think I would be almost everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's just the way it is. I've always felt like there's no limit to what you can do. Right. If you really want to pursue it. I never thought I would be like an Olympic javelin thrower. Sure, yeah, yeah. Of <laughs> you course. Know, something like that. But uh, there's a lot of things I really thought I could do that. And writing writing a book seemed like something I should do someday. Mm-hmm. I always kind of had this thing of like, uh, gee, it would be cool to write a book. I'd like to write a book. Right. It took me a long time to do it. I wrote my first book when I was, I guess, in my 30s. Oh, okay. And uh, I mean, I, the, uh, Once Upon a Tari is my fourth book. There you go. But some people pick a genre and go with it, right? Mm-hmm. They just keep writing in that. Right, right. That's not me. I am always all over the place. I like new challenges, new ideas, fresh experiences. That's what I'm all about. Mm-hmm. And so my first book, which I wrote as a practice book for my second book, because I just wanted, didn't want my second book to be my first book. Right. So I wrote a book about how to play a gambling card game called Pangini. Oh. You know, it's the complete book of Pan. That's my first book. Okay. My second book, which was the book I wanted to write that made me write the first book for practice, because uh-huh. that's the way I roll. was uh, called Conquering College. The most fun you can have learning the things you need to know. And this is is a book that details my system that I used because I I graduated college in three years with a double major, Phi Beta Cap. I had an amazing uh, experience (laughs) and I partied every night. That's awesome. (laughs) So I had a system to do that and then I went back for a one-year master's Uh in a third subject. So in four years of college, I got two degrees with one advanced degree in three and a half subject because I had an extra minor. Mm-hmm. And then I conquered, then I went after like the working world, right? So that was Conquering College. And that's a fun book. My Then I took a break for a while writing. I wrote columns and things like that. That's my right. break. I'm only writing columns. <laughs> and then, uh, my, my third book, 
is inspired therapist because I'm a psychotherapist. I wrote a book about my journey to become Uh, a therapist and the insights and the inspirations that I found. And so that's my fourth book. So after, after writing a book on a gambling card game, how to do well in college and becoming a therapist, what do you write next? (laughs) Of course you write once upon Atari. Now I made history by killing an industry. That makes sense. But it's my favorite book. I think at this point, because this is my memoir. It's an autobiographical thing. Exactly. Right. And you know, Nobody can tell my story like I can. The question is, does anybody want to hear my story? Oh, (laughs) again, as people see it, everyone still talks about Atari to the day. So stuff like this, the behind the scenes stuff is what everyone loves to eat up. Now, my question is, I have a horrible memory and I can't remember what I ate yesterday for dinner. How did you retain all these memories? Did did you have like notes over the years and stuff? And was there like times where you're like writing and you just had like a memory unlock where it's just like, oh, I forgot about this, right? All of the above. Oh, okay. I mean, I had notes. I had ideas. I had memorabilia. I also have friends. I am still (sighs) friends with a lot of the people that I work with at Atari. So I did interviews with them. I would talk to them. I made... So when I started to go into video production, which I did in the mid-90s, one of the things that I did was I produced a documentary series called Once Upon Atari. Mm. That's the first, and that's a DVD series. Oh, okay. You can get all of this at onceuponatari.com. It's all there, and I can get you autographed copies if you like. But it's, I did this documentary series, and that was good source, because that was just a collection of a lot of stories from a lot of the engineers who worked there. Mm. And then when it was time to do the book, there was the Atari stuff that I did collect through memories, interviews, uh, just read it. The thing is, the, the stuff that happened to me at Atari was so formative, so intense. It was such a meaningful part of my life that it was indelibly printed on my brain. Uh, okay. In a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I remember a lot of it because, you know, you remember your traumas and you remember your great successes, right? Yep. And Atari supplied me an abundance of both. <laughs> <fun. laughs> because working at Atari was you could have an amazing success one day and you could literally be fired the next day if it went yep. that way. Yep. So there was always a sense of danger and there was always the potential <laughs> for huge triumph. Yeah. In a sense... What you'd say is that working at Atari was a lot like playing a video game, right? Because you can always get killed and (laughs) you can always win. You can always beat the boss. You can always make the big win. And uh, and it really was like that. I mean, it really was that intense. Mm. And so the biggest challenge in writing this, because this book took four years for me to write. This was, I mean, I wrote, I've written most of my other books very quickly. Okay. This book took a long time to write because when you're writing a memoir, when you're really writing something about your own experience, and especially if it's a kiss and tell book like Mm. this is, as a writer, you have to make a choice. And it's not an easy choice. And the choice is, am I going to tell the truth with this? Mm. Because when you really want to write something, there's that question. Am I going to tell the truth? Am I just going to make up some shit or am I just going to try and protect myself? Or am I going to not get sued? Yeah, that too. What's my goal? What's my goal? And at some point along the way, I had to keep asking myself the question, am I going to tell the truth? Mm -hmm. What am I going to do here? And I just decided all out to just tell the truth. Because the thing about Atari, there's a lot of things where, you know, you hear this is a true story and it turns out it's mostly made up. And like there's a grain of truth in it because the producers felt the original story was so lame. Mm. We got to juice it up. We got to juice it up. Yeah, yeah. I'd read a lot of stuff about Atari and it had two problems. 
one, it wasn't true, mm. which bugged me. Okay. And the but the the second thing is, it wasn't nearly as interesting <laughs> as the actuality. This was a case where the reality was much more interesting yeah. than the stories people make up about it. Of course. So I thought this is the time for me to go and really just tell the truth. And so I let myself go in that direction. And uh, fortunately, it's resulted in some very positive stuff because because it's amazing stuff. It was an amazing place to be and an incredible time in history. And it warped my life and my whole perception of what work is supposed to be. Look, on my first day of work, <laughs> okay. and I, there's, a whole, there's a whole section on my first day of showing up at Atari, but I'll just tell you one part is that before I went to work at Atari, I rolled a joint in the morning. Oh, love it. Because I knew pot was a big thing at Atari. Oh, the, even better. People talk about drugs at Atari. Yeah. I just want to set the record straight for a moment. There were lots of drugs at Atari, right? <laughs> so don't worry. There was plenty of drugs there. <laughs> and and I knew about this. So my first day, I rolled a joint. I want to be you know, a, a good new person at the, yeah. on the job. So I come in, I want to get in the so spirit cool. of things. Yeah, yeah. So I rolled a joint, and then towards the end of the day, my office mate comes in, shuts the door, and he doesn't know me. Okay. And he, he pulls out a bag of, like, amazing weed <laughs> and says, hey, I'm going to smoke it. I'm going to get high in here, so if you don't want to be around this, you should leave. Oh, that was nice of him. That, that's my first introduction to this guy. Right? <laughs> I hadn't met him yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I look at him, I pull out the joint, and I say, hey. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd love to join you. I said, in fact, here, I brought something. Yeah. And he takes one look at my joint, and he, like, oh, turns no. his nose up. He's like, <laughs> Oh, he's he, a snob. He goes, he goes, look, no offense, but I'm going to smoke some real stuff here, okay? Oh. And so I said, okay, pot snob, whatever. So, <laughs> yeah. and I, but he invited me to join him, and I did. Okay. And after a little while, I realized this guy was not a pot snob. This guy was a pot connoisseur. Oh, <laughs> there is a difference, was, yes. And I realized that, you know, I was I was going to have to up my game on a variety of levels <laughs> if I was going to work at Atari. That's so because cool. Because that's what Atari was about. And, oh, uh, I love it. But I will tell you one more thing. Yes, please. There, there were a lot of drugs at Atari. Mm-hmm. But the apex drug, the ultimate high at Atari. Okay was getting a game released. That's the high that people really chased. And whatever you could do to move yourself in that direction was it. When you get a game released at Atari, you know, it's your game. You did the game. Exactly. So there's no doubt about that. And then you see commercials on TV for it. That's a rush. Mm. And you go into a store and you see your game, the thing you did on the shelf for sale, Mm -hmm. that's a rush. I could only imagine. Then you see your game on the demo system, right? There's the demo system that's hosting one of the games so people can try it out. And you see your game on the demo system. That's a rush. Mm -hmm. But the ultimate rush, which I did get to experience with Yars Revenge, was when you go to a store Uh and your game is on the demo system. And you see two kids fighting for the controller (laughs) to try and play your game. Oh. That to me is the apex high at Atari, and that and I got to experience that, and that was just worth all the pain and tears and and just arduous labor that I went through at Atari because it was it is not fun making entertainment, but if you That's do it I well, hear. it's worth the time. 
No, most definitely. And I can't wait to get into this book and read it from start to finish because it has, it seems like it has everything and people should pick it up, check it out. And if you want to promote it, where could people go the best, easiest way to support you? Well, if you're talking about the book, Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry, yes. I want to heartily endorse what you're saying right here, right now. <laughs> and you can find it on Amazon. You can find the, uh, the paperback, the ebook are both on Amazon and coming soon I am about I'm more than halfway through it okay. is the audiobook because I am oh. doing an audiobook version I'm reading it myself okay. because you know what a wuss I would be if I write <laughs> a memoir and have someone else read it I will not do that sure. I got to tell my story so that's coming but it's available now it's available for Christmas uh, you can get it done and if you want you can either go to Amazon to just pick up the book if you'd like an autographed copy of either Once Upon a Tari book or the Once Upon a Tari DVD series, which are two entirely separate products with different material in them. Uh, both or either are available autographed by me directly, personally for you at onceuponatari.com. You can find out everything you need at onceuponatari.com for sure. Awesome. How about your socials where people could connect with you? Well, as a social individual, <laughs> I can be reached at, well, my, there's my psychotherapy website because I am a practicing licensed psychotherapist in California at uh, hswarshaw.com. On Twitter, you know, if anybody's still on Twitter, I'm at, HS, at hswarshaw. And on Instagram, I'm uh, hswmft, which is Howard Scott Warshaw, a marriage and family therapist. But you won't find a lot of therapy stuff there. What you will find is answers. Answers to the big questions in life, like what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and what should I do next? And the answer to that question is read Once Upon Atari because you will Love dig it. it. <laughs> That's awesome. And for myself, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under Finger Styles. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, the podcast DAP. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, comments, anything you want to get off your chest at the podcast DAP at gmail.com. Please rewind to the top of the show. Support those fine sponsors because if it helps them out, most definitely helps me out. And most importantly, please rate, subscribe, review on all major platforms. I have so many other questions to ask you, my friend. We got to do this again in the near future because, again, we have so much in common. Films, I love movies. We didn't even touch on if you're currently playing video games, what you like about the industry currently versus back then. I want to touch all that eventually. And even if you want to work again in the video game industry. But one thing I got to know before we wrap this all up. because. Yeah, there, there's so many conspiracy theories there's so many like end of the world prophecies nowadays as a robots engineer yourself which we didn't even touch on either should we be afraid of ai well there was a show in the 80s called happy days actually you would think it was the 70s right and in the words of the great fonzie okay when i think of ai i think ai <laughs> <laughs> Don't be worried about AI. Be worried about the people who want to try and use AI. That's what I would say. Oh, I like that. Okay, but Steve, it was really an honor being here and talking with you. And I I would be equally honored to come back again because we didn't talk because I do have a kind of a surprise thing coming up because I am going to have a reentry into video game (gasps) creation coming up just want to tease that i would be happy to come back and talk about that more and a variety of subjects because this has been a lot of fun for me i've really enjoyed it thank you so much for having me no thank you and on that note he's howard i'm steve this is the podcast peace